Good afternoon. Please stand with me as we read God's word from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 23. The word of the Lord says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misinterpreting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. Happy Easter. Resurrection Sunday, I mean, you could sound a little more excited because Jesus is risen, he is alive, the tomb is empty, so uh, we should all be amening for that. My name is Marco, I serve as a preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank you all so much for being with us on Easter or Resurrection Sunday. If you did not catch Alan, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 23. And while you open and or load your Bibles, let me just give you two brief updates. If you are new, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you. And so in the pews and in the Connect desk, which is in the lobby, we have these Connect cards. And let me just encourage, let me invite you to fill one out because once more, we'd like to take you out for food or we'd love to simply pray for you. In addition to that, we love God's Word, which means for us that we preach from God's Word, uh, and that means that we love to gift God's Word. So if you do not have a Bible, please take one with you. That is our gift from us to you. They're on the pews before you. Let's dig into our time this afternoon. When we used to meet at the McAllen Incubator, which wasn't too long ago, I remember having a conversation with one of the tenants who is a tremendous artist, he visited our service one day and afterward wanted to talk further about religion. As we met, he shared his philosophy on spirituality and he came to a common place that most come to when he went on to say that all world religions have some overlap and can essentially mean the same thing and point us to the same thing and he wanted to know my thoughts. While I agree that there were these moral similarities, at the end of the day, Christianity is absolutely distinct from all world religions and all philosophies. And when asked what the vital difference was, there was only one answer to provide, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes every single thing about the way we live and view one another. 
As one theologian went on to say, the church exists upon the premise and in the power of the resurrection. Meaning that when it comes to the premise that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no church. And without the power of, or excuse me, when it comes to the power of the resurrection, meaning that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the world wouldn't have been changed the way it has been, and we would have no power over sin. Therefore, today, I want us to consider the Word of God through the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. This was a church that was filled with issues, curiosity, and skepticism. And in this chapter, Paul specifically addresses the resurrection of Jesus and the implications it has on our faith. One of the most crucial main ideas that I want you to walk away from in this text is that the resurrection of Christ changes everything, not simply historically, but salvifically. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into our text Father, as we have gathered here this afternoon, we begin or we continue by praising you, for you are a good God who sent his son to save sinners like us. Therefore, we thank you for Jesus and his work for us. Lord, on a day such as today, by your grace and spirit, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us belief? Would you give us much, much grace this afternoon? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, in this chapter, as I mentioned briefly, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, uh, and they are speculating on whether or not Jesus had actually been raised from the dead. And we see this in verse 12, looking at it briefly. Paul writes, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you, meaning that he's addressing the Corinthians specifically, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? A claim like that or the speculation that the Corinthians are having isn't too different from some of the conversations that we have in our day. See, for the Corinthians, they were saturated in Greco-Roman society with no background in the scriptures that they, and as a result, they couldn't conceive of an individual dying and then raising from the dead or rising from the dead. Even when some of the, with some of the best philosophers to have existed for the Corinthians in what they grew up in, death was simply the end. Many in our day would consider curiously, if not skeptically, the exact same thing. And that's one of the distinguishing marks of Christianity, isn't it? That yes, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and while many desire this watertight argument, the truth is that Christianity doesn't conform to what we want, but Christianity does provide us with a watertight person, and his name is Jesus Christ. It is one thing to be resuscitated. It's quite another to be resurrected. In this section of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul provides us with two giant principles concerning the resurrection, its implications and its invitation. Its implications and its invitation. By providing a contrasting argument, Paul walks us through five implications of the resurrection. Three negative, two positive. All right? 
Beginning in the section of verses 12 to 14, Paul begins his argument by saying that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is useless. Looking at the text, starting in verse 13, he writes, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul is saying the message that we proclaim, the message of the gospel, that God saves sinners and our faith, which we receive from God through Christ and our way of living is all in vain. The word vain or the word futile means that it's all absolutely useless. If our faith in Christ is in vain, as he's kind of communicating, if it is in vain of him not being raised from the dead, then not only would the foundation of our hope be non-existent, but none of this and what we're doing here this afternoon would even be happening. There would be no church. There would be no salvation if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. The accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John would never have been written because Jesus would still be in the tomb and the apostles would have been proven as uh, con artists. Further, and more than likely, because they wouldn't have written those accounts, the apostles more than likely would have actually kept their lives instead of dying for their faith. There wouldn't be a New Testament, and Paul would never have converted to the man that he became. Our lives would probably have never crossed paths. Personally, I would have probably never met my wife, which means I wouldn't have my son. And the most transformative blessings that we have received would more than likely not even exist. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then what is the point of why we do what we do and live the way that we live? If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. That's the first negative implication. Secondly, one, remember, three negative, right? So secondly, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then you and I are still in our sin. This is verses 15 to 17. Paul writes, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, we're physically alive, but still spiritually dead. And if we're still in our sin, then not only are we under condemnation from a holy God, we are also without hope, and most obviously, this is the best life we could actually ever have. We'll talk about this more in a minute. Thirdly, This is the last negative. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We are still dead in our sin, and we are to be most pitied. When I say we, I mean the church, Christians. We are to be most pitied. pitied. In other words, seen as ignorant. This is verses 18 and 19. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, Paul is saying, those who are already dead, they're just absolutely nothing. There was nothing for them. They're literally annihilated. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, we are of all people most to be pitied. Saying that we're supposed to be looked at as ignorant. And he's not trying to sound like an emo who didn't get what he wanted. What he's saying is that if this life is the only place we find hope in, then we most absolutely should be the most pitied. See, Paul's argument so far, intentionally, is one without tension and one that is full of hopelessness. It would seem as though he's simply separating and giving us the, the, the bandage point of faith and fact. Here, faith could be seen as simply belief and values for one to embrace, but not to express, because what exists apart from faith is fact, you know, real historical events, occurrences, and realities. For instance, this is where many arguments against the resurrection take place when it comes to the empty tomb. As Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then we should be pitied. And one of the areas that we should be pitied in is upon the empty tomb. Many skeptics and unbelievers would go on to say that if Christians believe in the empty tomb of Jesus, then they are no more primitive and gullible than the disciples. However, when it comes to an argument like this, there's a problem. The problem is that the disciples didn't actually think they'd see Jesus again, right? They actually thought they banked on the wrong guy. Secondly, if all of the disciples believed in this and, and it was a lie, then what kind of a lie did they buy into that has no benefit to them? With the exception of one, all of the apostles were martyred. When you look through the pages of church history, when we consider James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he was thrown off of a cliff, and then to ensure his death, he was stoned. Rocks and a bunch of other debris were thrown on him. Paul was beheaded. Andrew was crucified in something that has now been known as the St. Andrew Cross. Peter was crucified upside down because he believed he could not experience the same death as his Savior and more than likely experience this crucifixion in front of his wife and children. If we were to end here, it'd be absolutely no tension and absolutely no hope. However, Paul moves from speculation to salvation by providing us with tension. And so once more, so that we're all clear, Paul gives us five implications of the resurrection. Three of them that we just looked at are in the negative. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our faith is meaningless, we are still in our sin, and we, above everyone, should be pitied the most. Here, Paul pivots in verse 20 by giving a contrast. Now he gives us two positives. Beginning in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ 
has been risen from the dead. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, thank God for all of the buts in the Bible, right? And so when it comes to this, Paul shifts. He goes from the negative to now the positive. And so the fourth implication is the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So now Paul grounds his argument not solely on the faith in which he has received, but history, meaning to say that Jesus is present tense alive. He not only existed uh, historically, something all contemporary scholars agree on, but that God raised him from the dead, not revived, not resuscitated, but resurrected him. As many as 500 people saw him, eyewitness accounts were recorded. The church was literally birthed as a result of Jesus's resurrection. So Paul uses this term first fruits, and, and this term is actually taking us back to the Old Testament use of the word. When, when the people of God gave to God, they would give their what is called their first fruits, meaning the first portion of their harvest, of their labor, of their generosity. An example here would be when, for example, we as the church give financially, where we give generously, we give our first fruits to the Lord. And that's where the term comes from. And what it means further in this context is that the first fruits are a sign of something that more is to come. And so at my house, pausing for a little bit, at my house in our backyard, we have a couple of uh, Duranta trees. And as it's rained over the last couple of days, uh, I can now see some, uh, some buds beginning to, to blossom. And those buds are a signal to communicate that more will soon blossom with bright greens and purples and oranges. It's dope. I love it. That's how we know that spring is here. So when Paul writes that Christ is the first fruits, he means to say that not only did Jesus secure victory over sin and death through his resurrection, but more resurrections are on their way through faith in him. Paul to the Colossians says it this way. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he is the first one and more are coming that in everything he might be preeminent. In short, the church is the fruit of Jesus' resurrection where we have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. We have all died and been resurrected with new hearts. Once more, as Paul tells the Romans, we were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Fifth and finally, because Jesus has risen from the dead, it brings about a spiritual reality for us. Verses 21 and 22. Let's read this because we're going to park here for a minute. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. When Paul uses the word in, it, it has to deal with a place or it has to deal with a state of being. For example, we are in Valley Community Church's building, 
We can't be in more than one place at one time, right? We are in this building. In the same way, we are in one of two spiritual conditions. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. When Paul speaks of being in someone, he means to be linked to them so their historical actions are credited to you. So either Adam, his actions are credited to you or Christ's actions are credited to you. So when Paul mentions Adam, here's what he says. He says, there are some who are in Adam. In other words, through Adam came death. So for a moment, Paul is taking us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, where Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God when tempted by the serpent. As a result of their sin, or as a result of their actions, death, sin, and corruption entered into our existence. I had this question asked to me earlier this week. Well, why, why Adam? Because Adam was the one responsible. Rather than protecting his wife, he was passive. Rather than stepping in and dealing with the serpent, he stepped aside. Rather than killing the serpent, he tolerated the serpent. And as a result, sin entered into our world. Therefore, Adam's guilt, Adam's sin is imputed. It's credited to us. And that is the condition we find ourselves in outside of Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we would still be in our sin. We would still be in Adam. Rebelling, resisting, rejecting, and refuting God as we once did. Those who do not know Jesus, this is their spiritual condition. They are in Adam. By contrast, Paul goes on to say, so one man came death through one man comes life. Where Adam failed, Jesus was victorious over temptation and sin and corruption and death. The historic risen Jesus lived a sinless life, died on a cross in our place and for our sin, imputing, taking on our guilt and then imputing back, giving us his righteousness. He then died three day, and three days later, he was resurrected by God. For those in Christ, there is pardon, forgiveness, redemption, a new heart, and a new life. That's resurrection. And a new way of living that has been shaped by the faith that you have received in Jesus. That's what Paul means when he writes that those who are in Christ are made alive. Through faith in Jesus, he takes our current spiritual reality and transfers us over to a new one. Once more to the Colossians, Paul said it this way, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The resurrection of Jesus and its positive implications are what make Christianity absolutely distinct from other world religions. The tomb of our God and Savior is empty. And where every religion, every other religion preaches a works-based performance where one merits their righteousness, Christianity preaches that the work has been done for you through another. 
The problem with works-based religion is righteousness and who can be righteous. The gospel of Jesus preaches that the work has been done for you by God substituting himself in your place. The work has been done. The very righteousness that God requires from us is the very righteousness that God provides for us in Christ. Therefore, because Jesus is raised from the dead, your faith is not in vain. You are not in your sin, Christian. You are not in Adam, and you are not pitied, but new. And so now we come to verse 23, which is the invitation. We looked at the implication, and now we look to the invitation. Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Here, the apostle plainly proclaims that because the resurrection has taken place through Jesus, because resurrection is taking place through faith in him, it will continue until his second coming for all who belong to him. And that's the invitation of the gospel. Belonging to Jesus. Not an idea, but a person. Not a relic, but a resurrected Savior and King. And this Jesus doesn't make nice people, he makes new people. This Jesus doesn't make haughty people, he makes humble people. It's here where sometimes... People think, many, not all, but many think that to be a Christian means to have some sort of wild or wartime experience. It's not always the case. Everyone's experience in coming to know Jesus through faith is different. I want you to consider three examples. The first one is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader of his day. Many speculate that by the time he was 21, he had between two or three PhDs, or the equivalent of two to three PhDs. At the same time, Paul persecuted the church. He imprisoned and murdered Christians. And then on the way to persecuting even more Christians, Jesus saved him. An unlikely convert, a man who had books of the Bible or of the Old Testament specifically memorized, was converted. Jesus saved him. Consider C.S. Lewis. Some of you enjoy C.S. Lewis's books, everything from Narnia to even uh, mere Christianity. Well, in his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis goes on to describe his, his actual moment of conversion, where he was traveling to visit the zoo one day with his brother. And he writes that when they left for the zoo, he knew he was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And all he knows is that when they arrived at the zoo, he knew that he was a Christian. That's what he writes about in Surprised by Joy. Not very, like, memorable. Pretty, pretty ordinary. And then my favorite is St. Augustine. Augustine who was not a Christian at one point, he was a womanizer. He was known for sleeping around. 
And this one day he says that he, and it's written in his book, Confessions, uh, and one day he was, uh, he was in a building and he heard the voice of a, of a, of a child. And the, the voice said, uh, take up and read, take up and read. And so he steps outside where he was only to find a Bible, coincidentally, right? He finds a Bible and the Bible's open to Romans 8 and he becomes a Christian after re- reading God's word. And so as he becomes a Christian, he gets up, he has his Bible, and then one of the women whom he knew, wink, one of the women whom he knew comes around the corner and she says, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I, it is me. And what we know is that Augustine starts running away from this woman. And so he's running away, and so she starts chasing after Augustine. And she's saying, Augustine, Augustine, it is me, it is me. And he keeps running, so she keeps screaming louder. And so finally, at one point, she says, Augustine, it is me. And Augustine turns to her and says, but it is not I. The invitations of the scriptures is to belong to God through faith in Jesus. On one hand, many of you believe, that, believe this invitation intellectually. But I want to challenge you to belong in a relationship with Jesus. Not just intellectually, but one where you've surrendered. On the other hand, some of you are spectators. Some of you are skeptics. Thank you for being here. And you might be wondering about perhaps the historical evidence. And while we can provide a few of those things, eyewitness accounts, early Christian writers and letters, church historians that aren't actually Christians, such as Josephus, the question is, what would that really do? You can believe that someone exists and still reject them. Therefore, in addition to historical events, the God of the Bible invites you to belong to him through faith in Jesus. For the Christian, this life is as bad as it'll ever get. Church, this is the closest we'll ever get to experiencing hell. However, for the unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus, this life is as good as it'll ever be. This life is the closest you'll get to experiencing heaven. In this chapter, Paul writes of the gospel. The word gospel has a background in messengers that armies would send out to convey a report on how the war or the battle was going to the people of their city. People would be concerned because if there was a loss in victory, there would be possible enslavement. And so when the war was won, or if the war was won, these messengers would go back out and announce to the people that the war was won and that they're not slaves, but free. This was called the Evangelion. In other words, the gospel, which means good news. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians to explain that we are a people who have experienced a triumph at the work and victory of another. Someone else has fought for us and someone else has liberated us. Therefore, we are not slaves to unrighteousness or to our sin. We are free. 
This gospel is not only one that we as Christians have received, but it is one that we proclaim. And that is that God entered into time, space, and history as the man Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, a life that you and I cannot live, and died a criminal's death in our place, the one that you and I deserve was buried and through the power of the Holy Spirit was raised from the dead, securing victory over sin, death, demons, and hell. And he offers us the grace of this salvation that you and I cannot earn. This Jesus invites you to belong to him through faith in him because his resurrection changes everything. And this is the news that we proclaim today and every single Sunday. For Jesus is risen and the tomb is empty. Therefore, Christian, you belong to God because of Jesus. You are not who you were. You are redeemed. You are new. You are forgiven. You are not your own. You belong to him who called you out of darkness and transferred you into the light of his beloved son. What needs to be brought before the Lord this afternoon? What do you need to confess? What do you need to put on the table? Fix your eyes upon Jesus, Christian. And if you're not a Christian and you chose to gather with us, thank you so much for doing so. And I got to tell you, you are in Adam, dead in your sin, in rebellion toward God, and estranged from God. Yet, he has made a way for you to come and know him through faith in Jesus Christ, the risen king. Repent and believe. The resurrection, church, the resurrection of Christ changes everything, not only historically, but salvifically. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our good God, Savior, and Redeemer. We praise you and only you. Simply put, Lord, would you forgive us of our sin? Would you forgive us of our forgetfulness of the gospel? Would you forgive us for preaching a different gospel to ourselves? For believing in a different gospel? The message of your gospel is that through Jesus, we belong to you, Father. Therefore, would you give us grace today? Would you give us grace? Holy Spirit, would you help us to fix our eyes upon the beauty and glory of Jesus?